재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 We're back. We're talking about some of the difficult issues here in Northeast Asia. We've discussed North Korea, its belligerence, the reactions to it, uh, the controversies over potential THAAD deployment in South Korea. We'll talk more about the wider implications of President Park Geun-hye's foreign policy, specifically her North Korean policy, and whether it's been working. Typically, uh, the president, if you want to paint a very broad brush on her presidency, has been considered to be maybe uh, performing a little bit less uh, competently or successfully in domestic issues, but she's been generally given fairly decent marks in foreign policy. Uh, Maybe this A recent spate of events uh, changed those perceptions. Give us your thoughts. Text us at pound 1013 for 51 or send us a Kakao Talk message. We'll be joined by another correspondent very shortly, but once again here in the studio, our friend from Korea Expose Managing Editor, Koo Seung. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so fourth nuclear test um, on the heels of that, a long-range ballistic missile launch, And uh, all these people basically saying we're at square one. Nothing's changed over the past uh, two decades in terms of North Korea, the brinkmanship, getting people to the table, talk about an agreement, try to uh, denuclearize, ultimately have a peace treaty, which North Korea is basically saying is their end game. They want a peace treaty with the U.S., have open diplomatic relations, basically end the Korean War, ensure the regime's survival. That all pegs down to then what we were talking about, President Park and her foreign policy. She's very hardline. Some people would like to see a little bit more of a conciliatory uh, stance. What do you make about this? With uh, Seoul's exclusion from those talks, they, it's a point of pride in terms of, oh, you know, we're not at the table. But really, in terms, I mean, to be blunt, South Korea is not the major player in this saga, right? No, and if we actually think back to history, South Korea has never party to the armistice agreement that kind of put a temporary end to the Korean War, right? It was the United Nations forces represented by the U.S. and North Korean military and the Chinese military. Um, however, of course, when uh, South Korea was governed by a more friendly administration, North Korea certainly had no problem with including South Korea at the table. This was certainly the case when No Moyeon was president. And yes, so there is something to be said about how President Park Geun-hye's policy toward Pyongyang may have had an impact here on North Korea's um, exclusion of South Korea or attempt to exclude South Korea from a peace talk. But at the same time, um, it's always been the case with Pyongyang that they wanted to talk to one party and one party only, and that is the United States. So it's no surprise that North Korea reached out to Washington before the fourth nuclear test and said, let's try and finally hammer this down. And they were rejected essentially by America, which said uh, no denuclearization, no talks. This has been yeah. also the standard line from Washington. So here we are with the fourth uh, nuclear experiment, which frankly is all but a cry for attention from Washington. They really want to talk to U.S., but so far there really hasn't been much of a talk, as we all know. And that uh, strategic patience policy by the uh, current uh, Barack Obama administration, obviously very frustrating uh, from the North Korean perspective. And as uh, Sam has pointed out, you're seeing uh, this saber rattling, which again, unfortunately, is a, a pattern that we've seen reported, repeated over the years. Let's also now uh, get the thoughts of Arahopa Amerise from FN News Agency of Spain on the line. Hello. Hello. 
Ada, thank you for joining us. I guess the first question for you, do you think there's any possibility that uh, Washington will try to have a two-track system where they're, okay, let's try to denuclearize North Korea, but also uh, be open to having peace treaty talks with Pyongyang and at the exclusion of Seoul in the future? Uh, there will be a possibility that the United States won that, but I don't think it might be possible because North Korea wouldn't accept that. I don't think North Korea would accept the denuclearization in any kind of talk. They, they just show that they, uh, that they are uh, really directed to the nuclear power. And I don't think they would uh, try to talk to the U.S. and try to negotiate uh, to get back uh, the, not the, the nuclearization of the country at this stage. I think it's a very advanced stage, so I don't think that would be possible. Tell what do you think is the best possible diplomatic move South Korea could make at this point uh, with these tensions? I mean, people say, if you even say, okay, let's talk without preconditions, oh, you're back to the sunshine policy, you're being, uh, you know, you're being too leftist here. But um, is talking basically the only option? I mean, the president famously wanted that university uh, unification jackpot uh, thing. We're going to boost our economy once we... Uh, unify with North Korea on our terms, obviously, mm -hmm. is that all losing momentum? I mean, I think we have to really ask the question of whether the administration actually wanted any kind of talk in the first place. We may talk about this a bit more in detail, uh, but but did uh, trust, trust politic, which was the defining term that Park Geun-hye used to describe her approach to North Korea, what has that really been until now? And frankly, with the kind of saber-rattling that went on last year, or in August, if you recall, there was quite a bit of tension in on the Korean Peninsula over military maneuvers. Did the government really then say, uh, we really want to have a dialogue? I think, uh, if anything, South Korea really wants a confrontation. Mm. And diplomacy is not something it really sees as being yeah. in its cards. Very interesting. Out of the Korea Central News Agency, KCNA, they say uh, its development of nuclear uh, programs will remain intact uh, even if uh, South Korea decides to permanently uh, keep Kaesong shut down. Now, the South Korean companies uh, that operate uh, Kaesong have lost a lot of money. Do you think the uh, South Korean decision to shut down Kaesong uh, has had the intended effect or has it backfired? Uh, well, actually, uh, I think that uh, from an economic point of view, the cost of cash is much worse for South Korea than North Korea. It has been only a few days, and uh, the South Korean companies, they claim that they lost more than 850 billion won, uh, while the, uh, the money that North Korean employees get for one whole year is just 100 million won. Uh, that is uh, not that uh, 100 million dollars, sorry. So this is not that big compared to the GDP of a country, right? So I think these uh, this operations, the, the, the closure of the operations, are going to give a big losses to to those companies, and and they are and they are going to hit the economy of South Korea in a, in a moment that we are already in a crisis. So I think uh, the, uh, the that decision of the South Korean government maybe was not the, the best way. To, to try to cut the income of the uh, of North Korea. And that's a very interesting point of view, uh, Seung, because the conventional wisdom here has always been, let's stick it to North Korea where it hurts. Uh, we shut down the Kumgang tours. They love that all that hard currency coming into the country to fund their various illicit purposes. We're going to shut down Kaesong now. That's going to hurt them 
quite a bit because of all the workers' money that's being paid, and uh, they are funneling all that, and we know the political controversies. But the facilities, equipment, the capital stuff there, uh, North Korea basically can do what it wants with it. The firms, as uh, Ada pointed out, the South Korean firms have been making a lot of revenue from those uh, factory activities. Uh, essentially, what do you see about the situation? How big the losses and what measures the government has been drawing up to try to help these uh, poor South Korean firms? Well, I can give you some numbers here. We're talking about 124 South Korean companies who are operating out of Kaesong, um, employing some 54,000 North Korean workers, about which the South Korean government may not care so much. But, but also we're talking about some 5,000 South Korean cooperative ventures that were uh, either working with or supporting these 124 companies in Kaesong. So when you think about those workers in South Korea too, we are really thinking about a, quite a significant economic impact on South Korean industries. Uh, the government has claimed that the losses really only amount to $455 million for the companies. But if you talk to the companies themselves, they will argue this is a grossly um, mm -hmm. underestimated figure. And, and if you actually look at the compensation regime offered by the government, um, it is supposed to cover 90% of these losses. But in reality, it only applies to the so-called immovable assets of the companies. These are things that cannot be moved around, like the factory facilities and the equipments there. Um, and this compensation does not extend to, let's say, losses suffered on the finished or unfinished mm -hmm. goods and the raw materials that are left behind in North Korea. So if you take these things into consideration, it's all but certain that these companies are not likely to survive without uh, further compensation, right. which the government has not really indicated it will offer. Yeah, it does seem like a very tough situation indeed for these uh, firms. Now, Ada, from Japan's perspective, their cabinet approved a raft of sanctions on Pyongyang. Uh, can you just go over what these sanctions are, and do you feel that these are going to be powerful, strong enough to have any effect on North Korea? Well, first, there, there are like uh, basically four measures. The first one is banning remittances to North Korea, except those uh, for humanitarian purposes and less than $900 in value. Uh, then uh, they renewed the ban on North Korean ships entering a Japanese port, and they extended to some ships that carry other countries' flag that uh, have been called in North Korea. They also banned North Korean citizens coming to Japan, and they banned nuclear and missile-related engineers who have been to North Korea from coming to Japan. And I think they are they are strong enough, and they are they are going to hit the uh, the North Korean economy because, uh, as, as everybody knows, there are a lot of North Koreans in Japan. They have a big community, and they have businesses, and they they uh, remit a lot of money to North Korea. That that uh, that money actually was. Uh, uh, very, very important to build the actual North Korean system. And, and now they, they, they are really cutting those remittances. So I think that uh, in that way, uh, th those sanctions can, can hit the, the North Korean economy combined with the South Korean and, and the United States sanctions. Right. Uh, as uh, many people have been pointing out, all these unilateral sanctions uh, will play their part. But bottom line, if China doesn't get on board, by far their most important uh, economic partner, uh, perhaps uh, all those uh, punitive measures would be mitigated by that. Otto, we're going to leave it there, but thank you, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Aropa Amerise. Uh, we have uh, Seung on in the studio, uh, we're just kind of jumping around a bunch of different topics in relation to this. Uh, Sehung, there was an open uh, discussion at the United Nations on Monday. South Korea now saying 
hey, we should talk about whether North Korea should still be a standing member of the United Nations. Uh, this sounds a little <laughs> dramatic because you, you look at the situation, both constitutions, if we consider them to be sovereign nations, nation states, mm -hmm. they both have constitutions, they both claim to be the only Koreas. Mm -hmm. China was successful in saying, okay, I'm, you know, one China policy, we're the real China, the rest of the world basically got on board. Taiwan obviously lost out on that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like this is a feasible thing, no? Well, I mean, when was the last time we saw any member state of the United Nations being expelled? Right. Let's be serious here. Um, there are many, many governments around the world uh, that are uh, bad, perhaps even evil. Um, we can think about Syria and how Syria violates a host of resolutions from the UN Security right. Council. And it has been accused of genocide against its own people. But Syria is still a member of the UN, right. and nobody's talking about kicking Syria out. So how realistic is it? I think we have to accept that this is not such a realistic maneuver by South Korea. But this is really kind of rhetoric that is aimed at the domestic audience. Uh, President Bakane has uh, consistently benefited from appearing strong against North Korea. This is what her core conservative supporters want to see. And every time she does that, her approval ratings will go up. So here... Once again, all talk, no action, yeah. but, but um, yeah, they're doing something, I guess. And a bit of a preview of what we can expect, uh, North Korea, and this is, again, a pattern, and we see this every time, but they are strongly denouncing the upcoming uh, joint military exercises between Seoul and Washington. They always threaten that they're going to do something pretty serious. We've already seen some serious things occur, not all out of the realm of possibility that we could see another provo provocation from the North. I think at this time it is very important to note that uh, this uh, joint military exercise between South Korea and the U.S., um, it is different this time because it's meant to be offensive in nature and not defensive. Traditionally, when the two militaries uh, will um, hold a joint drill, they usually practice maneuvers that are meant to counter any potential attacks from North Korea. This time they're talking about maneuvers that will um, suggest um, perhaps um, uh, making a preemptive strike against North Korea. So certainly this is a very provocative thing. Of course, I mean, the two governments, they they have, I guess, they, they are on reasonable ground to make a strong statement against North Korea, given the, the continuation of nuclear experiments and then the, the rocket launch. But, but for them to not expect mm -hmm. that there may be some kind of provocation or uh, countermeasure by North Korea would be uh, certainly um, unreasonable. We have a little bit of time uh, left, about four or five minutes, and I just want to focus this, I'm a former political science major, and <coughs> unfortunately or fortunately everything kind of always gets filtered through a political lens with a lot of these things, and I, I just want to get your thoughts because I do know you have definitely a political <laughs> perspective as well, Seung, but this all, and you mentioned that the, the government, for some reason or another, has decided we're going to double down on this. We're going to uh, damn the consequences regarding whether uh, China gets upset or not, all of this. But we have an April general elections coming up. And if you look at this from a purely Machiavellian perspective of mm -hmm. what can be the foremost issue on voters' minds before they go to the polls, we know that Senators already, you know, they, they're ahead. They have a base of support sure. that, and the operation is split, opposition is in disarray. But if they can focus this attention and say, North Korea, once again, the number one issue, 
commie sympathizers, a lot of them are in the opposition party, can't have them be a part of the power structure. Who are you going to vote for? Do you want to survive? It seems to play into this pretty well. Am I being a little bit too um, dramatic? C cynical? Yeah. I never expected that this would be com uh, coming from you because I always thought uh, you were trying to temper me down. But, no, just, just, uh, but it seems like the timing of this is fairly convenient. I think you're absolutely right here. Um, frankly, if you look at the, the government's domestic agenda, we, we're seeing something of a standstill. Um, I think the, the government has made a great show of, of blaming the opposition over the failure to pass the, the labor reform bill that, um, according to the president anyway, has been sitting, uh, around for, I guess, almost three years now. Right. And, and that's, uh, that's flagging. We really don't know where this is going to go. Um, just today we witnessed a rare session of filibuster in the National Assembly over the proposed uh, anti-terrorism law, which would give uh, great authorities to the National Intelligence Service and, and is opposed by many people here in South Korea. So when domestic agenda does come to a standstill in South Korea, it is not hmm. an unsound move to, to resort to uh, fanning people's um, anxiety over North Korea. And, and with these uh, very strong maneuvers, um, then the, the costs, uh, diplomatic costs that may incur yeah. in, in terms of the sacrifice to the relationship with China, I, I think this really does play well here, at least among the conservatives. They wanted to see action. They call the, the 10 years under the, the liberal administrations of Kim Dae-jung and Noh Moo-yeon as the, the lost decade. And they're not just talking about economics. They're really also talking about policies toward North Korea. They don't want reconciliation. They want force. And we are certainly seeing it from the government. You mentioned the filibuster, the anti-terror legislation, ostensibly uh, threats from ISIS, but a lot of people feel uh, again, uh, mm. there's inherent mistrust with the NIS. And whether uh, we know that this is a democratic country, we know that North Korea is a brutal regime and there are certainly no uh, basic civil rights uh, for the citizens, but there is legitimate concern here for civil liberties and whether uh, these fears over things like North Korea or terrorism can eventually perhaps uh, affect the civil liberties in South Korea in a very detrimental way. Well, this has been the traditional strategy of the South Korean conservative, play up the threats both uh, external and internal. And um, before it had always been uh, the so-called communists that were blamed for trying to destabilize South Korea. We certainly saw this happening in the beginning of the presidency with the disbandment of the, the small leftist uh, opposition party, if you recall, UPP. And, and now they're building on this rhetoric, but in a slightly different way emphasizing threats such as yeah. the, the Islamic State. And also, it really actually helps the government in North Korea is so provocative. Huh? Right. This is a wonderful thing for the government if you simply think about real politic. You know, whether you support or whether you oppose the current government and the ruling party, one thing that I think everyone can agree is they are brilliant politicians and they do know <laughs> how to win campaigns, and that is the bottom line. Seung, as always, we appreciate your uh, analysis and your insights. Uh, thank you for joining us and hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much.